Well, this is week number four in our Advent series. Week one, we looked at the promised Savior in Genesis 3. And then week two, we looked at the promised Lamb in Genesis 22. And then last Sunday, Tony preached on the promise of the shepherd king from Micah. This morning, we're going to be looking at the promised child, Isaiah chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to jump in at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If I was to ask you this morning to describe our Lord, what are some of the words used in Scripture to describe our Lord, titles given to him, or names and descriptions given to our Lord? You might say, Son of Man, Son of God, the Messiah, which means the Anointed One, Jesus, which means God saves. Lord, meaning the sovereign one. The Lord of lords and the King of kings. The Lord of the Sabbath, the one of eternal rest. The head of the church. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The lamb, the lamb of God. The suffering servant. Man of Sorrows, Son of David, the great I Ams of John's Gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the light of the world. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The, uh, the balm of Gilead, the rose of Sharon, the Holy One. And I'm sure there are many others. Can you name any others? Anyone? Did I miss some? I know I've missed some. There are many in Scripture. These are words. These are titles. These are names. These are descriptions of our Lord. Isn't that amazing when you think about how to describe our Lord. Now this morning we're going to be looking at four names, four titles, four descriptions given to our Lord. So here's what I want you to take away from this message this morning. The glorious meaning of Christmas is that the child born at Bethlehem was God in the flesh. Or subtitle, the glorious meaning of Christmas is God promised us a child and God gave us a child. So that's what I want you to take away from this message. 
the glorious meaning of Christmas is that the child born at Bethlehem was God in the flesh. In Genesis chapter 3, you remember that Adam and Eve had sinned. They had fallen into sin and God pronounced judgment. And in the midst of that judgment, God gave a promise that there's going to come one from the seed of the woman and although the serpent's going to bruise his heel, that heel is going to crush his head. So God made a promise that through the seed of the woman, a savior would come. Then in Genesis 12, 3, God makes a promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That he is going to be the savior, not of just the, the Jews, but of the Gentiles also. And we read in Revelation 7, 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and people and language, standing before the lamb clothed in white robes, crying out salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. The Old Testament is full of prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Isaiah 9, we are told God's Messiah, God's salvation would be a child. Isaiah 6, for to us a child is born, a son is given. And when you come to the New Testament, that's exactly what you find happening. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Let's pick up verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so is written by the prophets. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For, you shall come, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd the people of Israel. 
When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, he sent them away to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen went, and it rose and went before them until it came and rested over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with, uh, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in the dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill what the Lord had promised by the prophets that he'd be called out of Egypt. It's all about a child. It's all about a child. And I love that account in Luke's gospel. There was a man by the name of Simeon, and God had promised that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's salvation. And Mary and Joseph come walking in, and the Holy Spirit bears witness with his spirit and says, this is the child, and he takes that child in his arms, and he said, now I can depart in peace because I am beholding your salvation. He's holding a child and saying, this is God's salvation. So it's all about a child that is born and a son that is given. Well, how do we know that these words spoken in Isaiah really refer to Jesus? Well, go back to Isaiah chapter nine. Go back to Isaiah chapter nine. And look at verses one and two. Isaiah chapter nine. For there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali but in the latter time he has made glorious the ways of the sea the land beyond the Jordan Galilee of the nation the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness on them a light has shone now go over to Matthew chapter 4 go back to Matthew Now look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when he, speaking of Christ, now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Notice that? So that... This is a fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. So that what uh, might be spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah has this prophecy. He sees this one coming who is going to be a great light. 
in the midst of the darkness and that this child is going to be born and this son is being given to us. That is his prophecy. He has seen this. And you might want to notice the condition of the world in which the child is born is described as a place of gloom and anguish, walking in darkness and deep darkness, and that this child is going to be a light in the darkness. So God promised a child. God gave us a child. And that child's name is Jesus. What is he like? How is he described here? He's talking about a governor who's going to rule. What kind of a governor is he going to be like? And we are given four names, four titles to describe this child, this son. The first title, Wonderful Counselor. Now, some treat this as one designation. Others put a comma after wonderful. Wonderful, comma, counselor. So which is it? Is it wonderful, comma, counselor, or is it wonderful counselor? I lean towards wonderful counselor. And I do so for this reason. If you go into Isaiah 28, 29, the same prophet says, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So I like to treat this as one designation, one description, one title given to our Lord. Wonderful counselor. And notice it's for us. Verse six, for to us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor. This child, this son that is given to us is given to us as a wonderful counselor. God, the father doesn't need a counselor. It is we who need a counselor. God in his infinite grace and kindness sent him into this world to be our counselor. Wonderful counselor. What does that mean? It means one who has been endowed with absolute wisdom and therefore can help us and aid us in our time of need. A counselor is someone you turn to for wisdom. A counselor is someone you turn to when you need advice. A counselor is somebody that you turn to when you need somebody to appraise the situation and give me some counsel, give me some wisdom in this particular situation, give me some divine guidance. A counselor is someone we turn to in time of need. A counselor is someone we turn to for help. A counselor is someone that we turn to when we are at the end of the rope, when we're troubled and when we're confused. We turn to a counselor. In the Old Testament, kings had many counselors to advise them. There were wise men around the king who would give them advice on national policy and going to war. King David had many counselors. And for us, a child is born, a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What does it mean? one who is endowed with absolute wisdom and therefore can help us and aid us in time of need. Paul describes Jesus Christ in Colossians 2, God's mystery, which is Christ 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we've got a wise counselor. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? J.I. Packard in his book, Knowing God, defined wisdom this way. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and the highest goal with the surest means of attaining it. So we've got this wonderful counselor. He is wise. He has the ability to see what is best for your life and my life and to know what he needs to get us there and to achieve that goal the best way possible. He is a wise counselor. Now we, on the other hand, we're not very good at counseling people. We have trouble counseling people, don't we? What am I gonna do with this kid? I keep talking to him and talking to him and he will not listen. What are we gonna do with this couple? Their marriage is a mess. I've been counseling them for months and they just won't listen. We have a hard time counseling people because we don't really know the issues of the heart. I'm afraid oftentimes we're like Job's counselors giving very poor advice. But our Lord is a wonderful counselor. He knows what's going on in our hearts and he can put his finger right on the issue. A rich young ruler comes to Jesus one day and says, good teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. But what does the commandments teach? Oh, I've kept all of those commandments from the day I was born. How are you going to argue with that? What does Jesus do? Say, no, you haven't kept all the law. No, Jesus, oh, really? You've kept all the laws? Yes, from birth I've kept all the law. Well, good. You just lack one thing then. Really, just one thing? You just lack one thing. What is it? Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. Jesus put his finger right on his heart issue. You don't love God supremely. You do not love your fellow man supremely. You love your riches and wealth. And the scripture says he turned and walked away and Jesus had compassion on him. Golly, he's a good counselor. And you remember the woman at the well? They're in a discussion about living water and thirsting no more. And then Jesus says, go and call your husband. Oh, he put his finger right on it. I have no husband. You're right, you have no husband. But actually you have had five men and the one you're with now is not your husband. I perceive that you are a prophet. He put his finger right on the issue. And you and I have this wonderful counselor who can come to us and he can put his finger right on the issues of our heart and counsel us. He's our helper. He's our advisor. He's the one that we can turn to in times of need when we are troubled. 
Brothers and sisters, do you know Jesus Christ as your wonderful counselor? Do you go to him? Do you seek his advice? Do you seek his help? Do you seek his direction? Do you practice what the hymn writer says to um, take it to the Lord in prayer? Is he your counselor? Is he the one that you run to for advice? Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye on you. We have a wonderful counselor in Jesus Christ, someone that we can go to in times of need, and he will help us. He will guide us. Psalm 73, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. 1 Peter chapter 5, cast all your burdens upon the Lord, for he cares for you. What's he doing? That's God speaking to us. He's given us counsel. He's given advice. Cast all your burdens upon the Lord because he cares for you. He's counseling us. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. That's the Lord counseling us. Be sober-minded. Be mindful you've got an enemy seeking to destroy you and your marriage and your children and your homes. Be sober-minded. Realize that we live in a fallen and sinful world and we are to resist him. So this child that is going to be born is a wonderful counselor. Let's move on to the second description of the child. For to us a child is born, to son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This child. Now we're looking at this babe in Bethlehem. Who is this child? It is Jesus. It is a man. This is the one born in a manger. He grew up as a boy in Nazareth. He worked as a carpenter's son. Well, who is this child? This child is a man. A true man, this child is a true man, he's a child, but he is also mighty God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. John puts it this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the really staggering claim of Christianity, says J.I. Packard in his book, Knowing God. This is what separates Christianity from all the religions of the world. That that baby born in Bethlehem is God in the flesh, God incarnate. That is the, the claim of Christianity, that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God. But he is also a true man, and he is true God. He's not half man, half God. He's 100% man, 100% God. There's not a mixture of the two. He is truly the God-man. The world has fallen into sin. Satan is reigning and ruling over this world. 
God made a promise that he's going to send a savior into this world who's going to defeat the evil one. He defeated Adam. Well, maybe he should just come up with a, a second Adam, maybe a second guy. And if that was sufficient, that's what God would have done. But the first Adam God created was perfect. He was upright. And I know theologians debate about this. What do you mean? Was he perfect? If Adam was really perfect, then he couldn't have fallen into sin. So we could say that he was just created upright. God created him perfect. And he fell. Well, maybe he could come up with a second Adam and maybe he wouldn't fall. No, he'd fall too. We need something mightier than just a man. All of the great men have failed. Adam failed. Abraham failed. Moses failed. David failed. All of mankind is under the reign and rule of the evil one. We need something more than just a man. We need a mighty God to conquer him. All the men of the past are failure. And I love the comparison or contrast between the temptation of Adam in the garden and the temptations of Christ in the wilderness. The Son of God comes, and where does Satan tempt him? In a beautiful garden? No, in a wilderness. Adam is in this beautiful garden with lots of food. Where's Jesus being tempted? In the wilderness. No food. Hasn't eaten for 40 days. Adam's not alone. He's got a companion. Jesus is all alone. Do you find it easier to sin when you're all alone? I do. When nobody's around, nobody will know, nobody will see. It's so easy to give in to sin then. So here's Jesus, not in a beautiful garden, not with companionship, not with food, but in a wilderness. And he's tempted not once, but three times and never fails. Not one sin. He is the spotless lamb of God. He is the mighty God who conquered Satan and sin. This is the child that Isaiah sees. This child is born as the mighty God. We got to get baby Jesus out of the cradle and realize this is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is the great I am, the God that created the heavens and the earth and the God that Hebrew says with whom we all have to do. Everybody in this room is going to have to deal with this child in Bethlehem, that he is the son of God. So this child is described as a wonderful counselor and mighty God. Now, everlasting father. This is the most surprising of all. Jesus is the son of God, but here he's called the everlasting father. What are we to make of this? Talk to Dave Dahan afterwards. He'll explain it all to you. <laughs> the, the everlasting father. Some say it's a matter of interpretation. Um, that it's a poor translation here, everlasting father. Some say it could be translated father of the ages or the father of the future ages. John Calvin said that's probably a decent translation that what it's saying here is that Jesus is the father of the ages. He is the father of eternal life, of the age to come. 
And didn't Jesus say that? I've come that you may have life and to have eternal life. So possibly the interpretation is he is the father of eternal life. Possible. But I think it probably means he's going to be one who cares for us like a father. Uh, look at Isaiah 53 for a minute with me. Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, if I can find the verse here, Isaiah 53, yeah, verse 10. Now this we know is of the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Do you see that word? He shall see his offspring. Somehow the death of Christ on the cross is going to produce children, offspring. Or you might want to turn to John chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 14. Uh, John 14, verse 18. Look what Jesus says here. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. He said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. So I would take this passage as everlasting father that Jesus is promising here. I'm going to love and care for you like a father loves and cares for you. And then Prince of Peace. I'm going to speak next Sunday more on that, that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But Jesus came to give us peace with God, peace with one another, and peace within ourselves, and peace in this world. Turn over to Isaiah 11. I know we're looking at a lot of verses this morning. That's good. Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah 11... Verse 6, look at this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. A little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze there. Their young shall lie down there. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Their nursing child shall play with the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And the water, as the waters cover the sea. He's talking about a day coming. Peace on earth, a new heaven and a new earth coming. He is the prince of peace. So what's the amazing thing about Christmas is that that child born in Bethlehem is God in the flesh. But it also is a promise that God is always trustworthy, right? What's at stake in Christmas is the trustworthiness of God. 
He made a promise that he's going to send a child, a savior. And thousands of years passed, 400 years of silence from Malachi to Matthew. And you keep wondering, is God going to keep his promise? And suddenly the angels appear to a group of shepherds and says, fear not, for behold, I bring you great joy of good news for all of mankind. For today in the city of Bethlehem has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christmas is about a faithful God who kept his promise. He said, I'm going to send a child and I'm going to send him. And there was a day that came, the child was coming and came into this world. God kept his promise. So you ask me, can we depend upon God? Can we depend upon God and his promises? A lot of years going by, don't see God doing much. As Christians, we can hold on to the promises of God because Christmas testifies to his faithfulness. Can't tell you how many funerals I've preached. And I go out there in those cemeteries and look at all those grave markers. And I remember the promise of God. There's a day coming when the dead in Christ shall rise. And we can hold on to those promises. We can hold on to those promises because God has promised. And Christmas testifies to the trustworthiness of God. And so we can go forward into the new year holding on to all the promises of God with great assurance. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I've given my son for you. Shall I not give you all good things? That's Christmas. God in the flesh. A child given to us to be our wonderful counselor. To be the mighty God who's conquered sin and devil. The one that treats us and cares for us like a father and the Prince of Peace that we'll talk more about next Sunday, Lord willing. Let's pray at this time. Father, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the truth and the reality that that child born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago was the Son of God. And Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. And thank you for your wonderful promises in your word that not one promise will ever fall void because of who you are. And we can bank our lives on it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.